please be seated. Please open your Bibles to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. And I'll remind you of our plan to work through simultaneously the Epistle of James and the 119th Psalm. And so we finished a seven-week section in James. We'll do a few weeks in Psalm 119. We'll go back to the next chunk of James. And God willing, we will uh, work our way through both simultaneously, concurrently. One of the reasons why I wanted to go through Psalm 119 um, slowly, eight verses at a time, is because of how much content there is and how easy it is if you sit down and read it straight through to think it's just saying the same thing over and over and over. Each of the strophes or each of the verses has its own flavor and tone. It follows an acrostic pattern, each eight Verse chunk beginning with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. For in English, it would be the first eight lines starting with the letter A, then the letter B, then the letter C. This morning, we hit the Vav strophe. And one of the things that's interesting about it is that's often how, when a Vav comes at the front of a Hebrew word, how it indicates and. In fact, some of your translations simply ignore the ands, they're thinking they're redundant. Planistic, that there simply there's a literary device and serve no further purpose. I, I think that can evidence a low view of scripture. But literally, each of the lines in our strophe this morning, 41 to 48, would begin with and. Um, in his helpful uh, devotional commentary, Alec Matir translates, gives his own translation. He's got every line starting and, Yahweh, and your salvation, and I will answer, and do not snatch your word of truth out of my mouth, and so on. Um, he, he writes this comment. Every verse in the Vav section begins with and. This does not necessarily appear in English versions because translators do not like repetition and, legitimately enough, use also or instead or illegitimately leave it out altogether. But in Hebrew, and is not used insignificantly. It joins together things that belong together. The and, introducing the opening verse, verse 41, indicates that in every situation of life, there's always this extra component, Yahweh's changeless love issuing in salvation, backward, backed by his word of promise. In fact, Matir's title to this section is Things That Belong Together. Perhaps the psalmist, knowing this stanza was coming, grouped together these things that belong together. Um, I think that's a helpful way of looking at this. These are things that are co-extant. They, they occur together. Um, they are, they're speaking of truths of the psalmist's own heart and mind, as well as prayer requests to God. It's grouped around two petitions. You can see them in verse 41 and 43. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord. And do not take the word of truth utterly out of my mouth. The rest of the psalm speaks to the psalmist's response. What he sees he will be doing in conjunction with these requests of God. I think the requests themselves really boil down to one request. The concern the psalmist have, the thematic common denominator of this strophe, is the psalmist's testimony among men. His testimony among men. That's Zemek's summary. Um, Dillich says it's a strophe about true and fearlessly joyous confession. 
But you can see that here. He's, he's concerned about someone mocking him. He's concerned about others belittling him. He wants to give them an answer. He wants to answer them with the word of God. He wants God to back up his promises so that he will not be ashamed. He wants to speak God's word boldly. So let's begin by reading these eight verses. We'll have a word of prayer and we'll dive in. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth. For my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually, forever and ever. And I shall walk in a wide place. For I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimony before kings. And shall not be put to shame. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Lord God, we echo the psalmist's prayer that your steadfast love would come to us, that you would not take your word utterly out of our mouths, that you would establish us that we might obey, that we might be free to act, that we might have boldness, that we might love and find satisfaction in your word. Pray now, Lord, as we look to your word, that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give the increase. In Jesus' name, amen. I've suggested to you that Psalm 119 is, is a sojourner or exile's guide to life. We don't know who wrote this psalm, but it's someone almost certainly outside of the land of Israel. Multiple times in the psalm, the psalmist confessed, I am an exile. He's surrounded by foreigners, foreign princes and kings. Suggested to you that possibly someone like Daniel is as good a fit as any. It actually fits pretty well. I'm not suggesting we could know that, but someone in his situation would actually make pretty good sense of this. Something like that. And so consequently, we, living in a post-Christian world, I think can write at home in Psalm 119. The psalm deals with the issues of life, our relationship to God, our relationship to his word, and the very real concern of persecution, the shame, the dishonor that could accompany such mistreatment. Um, In verse 42, there's one who taunts him. In verse 46, he's concerned with not being put to shame, embarrassment, ridicule. And so he focuses on two requests that I suggest really are pretty much boiling down to the same thing, if not the same thing, quite complementary. There's really one theme in this. He wants to be a good witness. He wants to live in front of unbelievers well, with an answer in his mouth, without a, a lowered head in shame. He wants to honor God and have a good testimony. The title is, Give Me Grace to Speak Your Word. So let's just look at this with the two requests, the two petitions. The first is in verses 41 to 42. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. You'll notice the first petition is a positive request. The psalmist wants something to happen. The second petition will be not something to have happen, a negative request. But here, his positive petition. And now for the first time in the psalm, a key term shows up. 
My ESV translates the Hebrew steadfast love. And it's a very particular word that it's translating. In Hebrew, it's chesed. If you want to sound really authentic, you've got to throw that guttural in. You know, chesed or hesed. And it's the first time it shows up here. And it'll show up seven times in Psalm 119. Um, some translations translate it loving kindness. That's the way the New American Standard translates it. The Holman Christian, your faithful love. NIV, your unfailing love. My, I think my favorite translation of this or paraphrase of this is from the uh, Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lowe-Jones. You are never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. What the idea behind this term is is something very particular. God loves all of his creation. We, we know this. He loves the birds. He cares for the sparrows. He clothes the grass with splendor. He saw it all. It was very good. And God loves all men in general. His reign falls upon the just and the unjust. And yet, God has set his love in a particular way upon a covenant people. This is that love. God's love within his salvation, within his covenant, within his family. Your blanks here, God's covenant faithfulness. His covenant love. The covenant love associated with covenant promises. I can say I I love other people, but I have a special love for my household family. And within the context of God's promises of salvation, first to Abraham, and then to the fathers, to Isaac, to Jacob, this love is unique in its application to God's covenant people. God has never said to love the sparrows this way. It's, it's an important term because it links to his covenant. Let me show you where God references this. In Exodus 3, you'll remember, Moses sees the burning bush. And he, he has forgotten, or the people have forgotten, he does not know God's covenant name. When you see the Lord in all caps in your Bible, that's their attempt to translate God's covenant name. What we, our best guess is Yahweh. It's his name of covenant. And God said to Moses in Exodus three fourteen to 15, when Moses said, who shall I say has sent me? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, all caps, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. Notice how he's linking it to the promises he made to the patriarchs. Moses, in his song of celebration, the Exodus from Egypt says in Exodus 15, 13, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You've loved them in keeping with your promises. You've taken them out. You know God's name as given on the mountaintop in Exodus 34. Turn there briefly. Um, I want you to understand that God's steadfast love, his covenant love, his chesed, is, is a key attribute and delight of his people. And so for the first time showing up in Psalm 119, it's significant. Remember, Moses goes up on the mountain. The priesthood's been compromised. Aaron made a golden calf. The people bowed down to it. God tells Moses he's going to wipe them all out, start over with him. Moses intercedes to the people. God relents. And Moses says, show me your glory in chapter 33, verse 18, then in chapter 34, 
We'll pick it up in verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, all caps, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, covenant loyal love. For thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children to a third and fourth generation. So this, this is God's love of promise. This is his gospel love. God's love associated with his promises of salvation. That, that's the idea. And for the first time in Psalm 119, the psalmist references this. So his petition is, God, give me your gracious, saving love. Let it come to me. And, and we see the link here. As he links it to he renames it, your salvation according to your promise. That's the idea. You've made promises associated with salvation within your covenant. Let those things come to me. Now, salvation could reference deliverance in a physical sense, in an economic sense. It could reference salvation from sin. God had promised many deliverances to his people. I believe in this instance, it's the vindication, the uplifting in the face of scoffers and taunters. But it would apply to any of God's promises in the gospel, any of God's promises in his covenants. So this positive petition for the Lord's covenant faithfulness, his salvation which he has promised. In Numbers 14, we're reminded the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Turn, turn to Deuteronomy 7, briefly. Pick it up in verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It is not because you are more in number than any of the people that the Lord set his love on you. So, See, there's a special sense that God set his love on Israel. He loves the birds. He loves the grass. He loves all people. He loves the stars. But he doesn't love them all the same. And here, when it talks about God setting his love on Israel, we're talking about his choosing, saving, covenant love. I love this. It's not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. Why, why does God love you savingly? Because he loves you savingly. That's why. Because he does. And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Notice the linking of this love and the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them 
Do not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. So the psalmist here brings up, he pleads for this faithful love of God in a context of God's promises, God's covenants. And he says, oh Lord, let it come to me. Let your deliverance, let your salvation come to me according to your promise. So he's asking for the very things God has promised to do for him. He's asking for the very things God has promised to do for him. So that's his positive petition. Um, Now let's look at the desired outcome, what he's hoping will happen as a result. We see that in verse 42. Then I shall have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word, and I take not the word of truth utterly from my mouth. Now, the Hebrew here, there's a... I won't say it's a play on words, but there's a consistency of term through this. Let me, let me read to you Alec Matier's translation just so you can get this. He translates verse 41 and 42 this way. And Yahweh, your committed love will come to me, your salvation according to your word, and I will answer with a word, whoever reproaches me, because I put my trust in your word and do not at all, snatch away the word of truth. You see how that word word shows up there? The Hebrew, the bar. He wants God to save him according to his word. He will then, he envisions, be able to answer with a word the one who taunts him because he trusts in his word, which then makes the next petition, and please don't take your word from my mouth. His desired outcome, to have an answer to the one who taunts him. But by virtue of the consistency of that word, I think it becomes clear what the nature of the answer is. He's, he's not got a snappy comeback he's looking for. He's not trying to find a solid burn. He, he wants to answer with God's word, with truth. Oh, Lord, send your steadfast love to me. Send your covenant love to me. And then I'll be able to answer with a word, the one who taunts me, because I delight in your word. I trust your word. He's envisioning answering the taunter with truth from God's word. That's his envisioned outcome, his desired outcome, to have an answer for the one who taunts him. And what we understand here then is that the ridicule he's facing is precisely because of his faithfulness. The godless are deriding him for his faithfulness. The whole implication is, I trust in your word. They're making fun of me for trusting in your word. What's the point of that? What's the use of that? Oh, Lord, answer your promises to me. Let them see your faithfulness. Give me a word to say to them in response. So he's not being ridiculed because of his own mistakes. He's being ridiculed precisely for his faithfulness to God. Then I shall have an answer to him who taunts me. Um, In most of the seasons of God's people, we've been subject to ridicule. If we haven't at periods of time, it's only the grace of God and an unusual thing. I just saw a pastor uh, tweet that in the first century, the Christians were being persecuted and, and slandered because they were so narrow and so intolerant because they only believed in one God and not all the panoply of the pagan gods. Today... We're so narrow-minded because of our views on gender and identity and sex. There's always going to be some part of our belief system that offends the current culture. So what the psalmist is dealing with here is true in our day. It was true in the first century. 
He wants an answer from God's word to the one who taunts him. His suffering and anguish for this is great. That's the next point. On the one hand, I want to make clear to you that we ought to expect this type of ridicule. We ought not be surprised. That doesn't mean it's not very, very painful. The psalmist is regularly bringing this topic up. The issue of shame, dishonor, being taunted. We can say sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. God does not agree with that. The psalmist regularly speaks to the anguish and the pain of taunts and words and ridicule. It is real suffering. Let's just look at some of the passages in Psalm 119 alone that speak to this. Look ahead just a few verses to verse 49. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort and my affliction, that your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly deride me. He's in affliction because the insolent are deriding him. Look at verse 61. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. Verse 69, the insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your commandments. And look at verse 84, how long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? Their insolence have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on the earth. So so on the one hand, I would have you not be surprised, chagrined, vexed, confused when the people of this world look down their noses, make fun of, ridicule, taunt, mock, belittle you for what you believe. You should expect that. That doesn't mean It's some light and easy thing. Simultaneously, the Bible says you should expect it. And passages like this very psalm make it clear. It is painful. It is difficult. It burdens one with anguish. This strophe is asking God to take away that burden so he can speak boldly without shame. That's the whole flow of these eight verses. So on the one hand, you should expect this. On the other hand, I'm not asking you to minimize its significance or importance or treat it like some small thing. Oh, what else did you expect? No, look at what centrality this theme takes place in this psalm. His suffering and anguish from this are great. Notice also at the end of verse 42, he gives a basis for his petition. Um, he asks God to send his steadfast love. He asks God to send his salvation according to his promise with the result that he'll have an answer, a word for the one who taunts him. But he says, for I trust in your word. And that's linking back to the logic of passages like we saw in Deuteronomy, where God says he keeps steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He's saying, I love your commandments, so now send your steadfast love to me. That's the first petition. Oh God, keep your promises, keep your word. I love your commandments. Enable me to have an answer to the one who is taunting me. Not some rude put-down, some snappy comeback, but truth. He wants to witness to God's faithfulness, which then links up to the second petition perfectly. His hope is that as a result of God sending his grace, 
God keeping his promise, he'll have something to say. So that means his fear then would be, take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth. We've just seen what he's hoping for. I'll have a word to say in response to the one who taunts. But he recognizes that he'll only have a word to say if God puts the word in his mouth. He's not relying on his own wit, his own cleverness. The only thing of worth that he could speak to those mocking him is words of truth that God gives him. And so he recognizes his dependency on God to do that. So he says it negatively. Take not the word of truth utterly from my mouth. This is then the negative petition. The negative petition. What he's in fact saying or asking for is the continued ability to speak God's word. The continued ability to speak God's word. Notice the location of the word. It's in his mouth. It's what he's saying. It's not in his ear what he's hearing. He is doing that as well. But the focus here is him speaking. It connects perfectly with the word or the answer he has for the one who taunts him. And again, I'll remind you of the continuity of that word for word. Yahweh, your committed love will come to me, your salvation according to your word, and I will answer with a word, the one who approaches me, because I put my trust in your word, and do not at all snatch away the word of truth from my mouth. The flow of thought's clear. He wants to be able to speak God's word with boldness. Second point, his expectation for vindication then comes from God's word. His hope of vindication against one taunting him is in God's word. That's instructive for us. If people around you are giving you a hard time, teasing you, your vindication, your hope ought to be that God might give you the grace to be able to in a fit season, seasoned with salt, speak truth to them. It doesn't have to be word-for-word quoting Scripture, but you're communicating God's truth to them. That's the most useful thing you can do. And you can pray like this, God, give me grace to know how to answer. I mean, this is tying in with Peter, right? Knowing how to give everyone an answer when you're questioned. Turn to Acts 4. We can see this picture perfectly. You remember in Acts 4, Peter and John are taken and beaten and charged by the Pharisees and the leaders of the Jews not to speak anymore in the name of Christ. And Peter tells them, whether it's right for us to obey you or God, it's up for you to decide we must continue to speak. I want to pick up what happens when they return to the church in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and then they quote Psalm 2, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And they break off the citation of Psalm 2. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, that whatever your hand had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. 
while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Their prayer here shares some similarities to the psalmist's prayer in Psalm 119. I want you to understand that's what's in view. Persecution, ridicule, taunting because of one's faith. Praying for a response that's bringing God's word to bear to them in a way that shuts the mouths of the adversary. In a way that requires God to work and God's grace, not my cleverness and my wit. He recognizes if God doesn't send his covenant loyal love, this endeavor is in vain. If God doesn't put the word in his mouth, if God doesn't give him the word to speak, he's got nothing of use to say. He's hoping and trusting that his vindication will come from God's word and according to God's word. Then point B, let's look at the desired outcome. He then, and the rest of the psalm, is dominated by statements about the psalmist. We've already seen a few. Verse 42, then I shall have an answer, for I trust. But now look at the rest of this psalm. My hope is in your rules. I will keep. I shall walk. I have sought. I also speak. I shall not be put to shame. I find my delight, which I love. I will lift up, which I love. I will meditate. And so these are the things that come together. We talked about Mottier's thought that these are ideas and themes that belong together. He's asking God to act, and he is then confident of the things that that will enable him to do and the things he will do in concert with that. If you want God to vindicate and defend you, you need to also be ready to do those things that are fitting along with it. So let's look at the outcome here, the desired outcome. First, obedience. Obedience. I will keep your law continually forever and ever. Pretty straightforward. (laughs) And we remember James's point of coming to God asking for wisdom, but only coming sincerely, wanting to obey, coming as his servants, coming as his children. God, in effect, give me the grace to know your will and to do it. Here, oh, give me your steadfast love. Vindicate me, but not just so I can feel good and vindicated, not just so I have something to say, but so then I'll be able to obey you better. Obedience, I will keep your law forever and ever. Next, freedom. Freedom. You could also maybe put security in there. He says, I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. And, and the idea of a wide place is in contrast to a narrow or tight place. Turn, turn your Bibles from Psalm 119 back a chapter to verse chapter 118. This psalm that we considered, I think, two, um, two Good Fridays ago or two Palm Sundays ago. And look at verse 5. Of Psalm 118. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. Now, literally, it's in my tight place. I called upon the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me in an open place. So the picture of a tight place is constraint, danger, a lack of liberty, a lack of freedom. And by contrast, a broad place is a place where you're liberty, a freedom of movement and security. And so it's, it's, I think the, the pressure, the tightness of the one taunting him, and you feel like eyes are staring at you, and he's envisioning freedom of movement. Then I shall walk in a wide place. 
for I have sought your precepts. If he has something to say to the accuser, if he's not hanging his head in shame, if he's boldly speaking God's word in response, he will have this liberty of freedom and movement and not feel constrained. Notice again the link, though. For I have sought your precepts. He's recognizing all of this because he's calling on God to keep his covenant promises. And we saw in Deuteronomy, God keeps his covenant promises to those who keep covenant with him. And so he's highlighting, Lord, I have been faithful. I love your word. I seek your word. So keep your word with me. Be faithful with me. You remember Deuteronomy made that abundantly clear. Deuteronomy 7. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. And so he's saying, O Lord, keep your covenant. I love your word. Obedience, freedom. Next, boldness and honor. Boldness and honor. He is envisioning the Lord sending grace sufficient that even kings will not intimidate him. This could be hyperbolic, but hey, people like Daniel and his friends did, in fact, speak in front of kings. In fact, turn to Daniel chapter 3. I think we see a wonderful picture of this type of boldness. Then I will speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame. Daniel chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar is insisting that Daniel's friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would um, forsake their God and worship his statue and his golden image. And he threatens them with death. I love their response. This is a bold, faithful response. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be be known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. That's boldness. They speak in front of a pagan king fearlessly. Fearlessly, I will speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame. It's the same boldness the early church prayed for and received. This is about a testimony, the ability to speak truth unashamedly, without fear, without a lowered head, which comes with it liberty of movement, honor, This is what he's envisioning. This is what he's asking God for as he lives around unbelievers. Next, satisfaction. So if God will answer his request to send his grace, his salvation, according to his promise, to not take his word from his mouth, he will be obedient. He'll experience freedom. He will be bold and have honor, or at least not be put to shame. Satisfaction. Verse 47. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. You'll be speaking about the very thing he's delighting in. Again, this isn't simply a, I do this, God does that. 
it's a genuine love for God and his commandments. And so he's praying that God would give him the ability to speak precisely because the thing about which he will speak is something he loves. One of the marks of God's people is we, we delight in, we are satisfied in, we enjoy thinking about and talking about what God has said. It's one of the marks of genuine Christianity. Satisfaction. I find my delight in your commandments, which I love, which then leads finally to commitment, to commitment. Verse 48. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. He's made his request, and now he returns his attention to God's word in these last two verses. Now, the picture of lifting up his hands is one of desire. I believe. Some have suggested maybe he's worshiping. I don't don't think he's worshiping God's word. I think it's something similar to Psalm 28.2. In Psalm 28.2, he says, Hear my voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands towards your most holy sanctuary. I want God to come and help. I'm reaching out to that which I desire. I'm reaching out towards that which I yearn and want I think, it's, I think that's the idea. I will lift up my hands towards your commandments. I yearn for, I want them. Desire. Affection. Again, now the second time in two verses. I love them, which I love. And then a commitment to study, to meditate on your statutes. Now he's asked God for understanding, but one of the important things for us to get is even as we are completely dependent on God's Spirit to open our eyes to behold and see things in His Word, even as we need to rely upon the Holy Spirit to teach and instruct us, we are also called upon God to study to show ourselves approved. That does not negate study and meditation and reading and rereading and pondering God's Word. We need the Spirit's aid, but the Spirit works through means. And most weeks, I'm diagramming sentences and Figuring out verbs. Now that on its own is worthless. But again, we see this concert of the psalmist asking God to do what only God can do. And the psalmist saying, I'm ready to do what you can enable me to do. And so he he commits to meditate on God's statutes. So let me try to tie this together then before we sing our closing song. The psalmist is concerned with the shame the ignominy and the genuine and true suffering of being taunted for his faith, taunted for God's commandments, which he loves, by unbelievers. He wants God to answer. He wants God to visibly answer him in a way that enables him to respond. You can imagine, like, where's your God now? Why did your God abandon you? There are psalms that cry out precisely along those ways. Psalm 42, as they say to me all day long, where is your God? We know David suffered from those attacks at times. And the psalmist says, oh God, send your covenant faithful love to me. Give me something to say from your word to the adversary. Don't take your word from my mouth. And then he envisions if, if God can do that, he will be obedient, and he will have freedom, and he will have boldness and honor. This is, this is about a testimony and living a life in front of an unbelieving world. You've you got to rely on God's word and God's truth and God's enablement and not your own wit, cleverness, your zingers, snappy comebacks. 
The vindication the psalmist is looking for comes from God and from faithfulness to his word. We have the sword of the spirit. We have something to say to an unbelieving world and culture, but we need to seek God's aid to give us the word to speak, and we've got to put our trust in it and not our own devices. If, if you feel that shame, that suffering, know that it's real. God, God's heart is for you. He's given a word to you. God's people at every age battle with that. So battle well. Pray these prayers. Let's have a word of prayer. I'll call the worship team up and we'll sing our closing song. Lord God, we want to have a faithful witness before a watching world. We want to have an answer to those who would taunt, mock us. But we want it to be a word that comes from your word that is spoken by your Spirit's enabling. And so, Lord, we pray that you would not take your word of truth utterly from our mouth. We pray that you would send your gospel grace to us who might speak your word. We, we commit, Lord, um, in that context, that our desire is to obey your word, obey you. Our desire is to speak boldly. If you determine before kings, so be it. Lord, we, 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 we desire you and your word. We pray that you would increase our desire. We might study it diligently. That you might receive the glory and the honor. That we might receive the blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Our closing song this morning um, looks to our great Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, glorying, boasting, delighting in him. Please stand.